leadership isn't something you do on the side. It can't be. It has to be a mindset. And I know people overuse the word mindset. We are constantly changing. So if that's true, then our leadership styles have to be adaptable. They have to be flexible and they have to be, you have to be willing to try stuff out and fail at it because it's not perfection that we're after. It's just better. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's completely free. In today's episode, we sit down with Achana Mahan, the Chief Operations and Technology Officer at Veritas Investment Partners. Achana has earned a reputation as someone who is passionate about unlocking the full potential in those around her and herself to achieve remarkable results. In this episode, she shares what she has learned about leadership from a diverse range of organisations that include Standard Life Wealth, Pioneer Alternative Investments, AXA Investment Managers and Citigroup. More specifically though, in listening to this episode, you can expect to learn how to avoid leading in your spare time, Achana's philosophy of 70% leadership, the practical tools and strategies to ensure that you have the time and space for planning and reflection, which if you're a regular listener to this show, will have heard me talk about the importance of this time and time again. And you'll also learn how to avoid overloading your star performers, plus lots, lots more. This really is a fabulous episode of the show, so that's enough of an introduction, and let's dive right in. Please enjoy my conversation with Achana Mahan. Achana, can you tell us, please, to start with, what is your first memorable experience of leadership, either good or bad, and how has that gone on to shape you as a leader? I think my first experience would be one where I was interacting with other leaders. So one of my very first exposures to the corporate world was as a person working in the mailroom. So my job was to get mail and deliver it to senior leaders in a corporate structure. I'm dating myself now, but I had a wheelie sort of carriage and I had all the mail in it and I had to go office by office delivering this stuff. And I was 17 or 18 years old. And I remember being struck by how many of these leaders wouldn't even look up from their computers. They wouldn't even look up from what they were doing. They would just sort of wave me over and they would ask me to put the mail wherever their in trays were. And the image sort of stuck with me because I thought, wouldn't it have been nice to be able to talk to these people, to actually understand what they were doing? Why were they so busy? And why didn't they have time to say hello? And I guess the reason that has affected my leadership style is that I will make sure that I always speak to everyone I work with. There is no one who I don't know in my team, in my office, in my business. And I'm very, very proud of that fact, because I think each of us is actually human and it doesn't matter what our roles are. No job is less important than any other. So that's my memory. Were there any of those 
senior leaders that you delivered the mail to that that did the opposite that actually stopped and sort of interacted a bit were, were, were there any were there many there were very few probably a handful and this was a different time as well it was the 1980s i think leadership looked different in the 1980s to what it looks like today very hierarchical organization with a lot of structure and so a puny mailroom attendant wasn't someone who was getting a lot of traction or attention. Fair enough. But a few people did stop and a few people did ask me how my day was going. And I will always be grateful for that, that those interactions I remember. It's interesting that you say fair enough, but I don't know from getting to know you very briefly in the prequel we had to plan for today's episode. I wonder if you believe this, but my take is it's it's not really fair enough, though, is it? Because as you just said, like everybody is a human being and people who listen to the show regularly will have heard me say this time and time again. And it, it really is, I guess, my core belief. It's why I do the work that, that we do. But I really believe that every single person we lead is the most important person in, in the world to somebody else. And, and they are a person, right? And what we do as leaders has a has a huge impact on people, even the stuff we don't realize we're, we're doing. And that therefore impacts on what they're like at home and that impacts on their loved ones. There's this real ripple effect, isn't there? And I, I, yeah, people do look to us. We, we have an impact. 100%. You know, it's really interesting that you say that. Two things strike me. The first is, my choice of language was probably not right. And language really matters, right? It's a big thing for me. I'm, I'm always thinking about the words that I use casually can have very large ripple effects if I'm not careful. So I said fair enough, and you're right to call me on it. It's not fair enough. It actually needs to change. And that's what people have been working on for decades, right? Trying to change the structure of companies, charities, all, all any workplace to make sure that it can be fairer, more inclusive, more diverse. And as humans, we can experience belonging as a result. So that totally fair point. The other thing that you said that I think is really important to highlight is that the way we feel at work impacts the way we feel at home and vice versa. We aren't segregated human beings. It's not like we can divide ourselves up into the work persona and the life persona. So the way you're treated at work is going to impact the way you feel at home. And we should never forget that as leaders or as humans, we should never forget that. And I don't know if you'll consciously sort of be aware of this, but you, that story you shared right at the beginning from, from the 1980s. And as you said, that probably was the leadership style of, of the time. If indeed leadership is the, is the right word to, to use, was it perhaps more management? Was it perhaps more business administration rather than leadership? But how do you think leadership has changed over that period of time, if indeed it has? That's a great question. I, I think we as a community and as a, as a world have really taken stock of what we think leadership means. And everyone will have a different view on this one. But I think the ones that, well, the, the definitions of leadership that most resonate with me are the ones which include things like being a leader doesn't mean having the corner office or being a leader doesn't mean you have all the power or being a leader doesn't mean bossing people around, if I can use that word. Instead, leadership is anyone's to take. We are all leaders in our own right in whatever way that shows up in the world. So 
as a mom to a 13-year-old daughter, I try to lead by example in the home. I try to do the things I want her to do in her life. In a traditional sense, I think in the 1980s, that wasn't what we thought. We didn't value people's professions and callings in the same way as we do today. And I do believe the world has moved on. And that gives me hope. That inspires me to do more and better. And I think everyone should feel they are in a position of leadership. The choice is theirs. Do they take it or do they walk past it? But I I love when I hear the younger generation talking about how they want to have an impact on the world. And it doesn't matter that they don't have the title. They just, they want to do good. They want to change outcomes. They want to influence in different ways and they use different tools to do it. But so I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but I think leadership has evolved and it has come to a place where everyone can be one. The question is, do we seize the opportunity or not? Yeah. And this is really interesting. So I think we're both quite passionate about about language. So we could really get into sort of the nuances of language here. But again, I think it's really interesting when you're talking about sort of being a leader at home to your 13 year old daughter. And I forget the exact word to use, but use the word try there, which I think that's really, really important. And we can almost interpret that word in two different ways, can't we? We said, well, I'm trying to be the best leader, which you could go, oh, well, that implies kind of I'm not there yet. I've not made it. Whereas I see it completely the opposite. It's something that needs deliberate and intentional thought. So we constantly need to be trying to, to be the leader we want to be or the best leader we could be because it's an active endeavor, right? You don't suddenly with the position arrives kind of all the, the skills and experience to do it. It's, it's something that takes thought. And so often I think we can get, and this leads us onto something we'll explore shortly, but we can get caught up in the, the doing and the executing, which means if we're not careful, we end up leading in our spare time or when we've got time or once all the doing's done, oh, then I'll do some of this leadership stuff. And to me, it just seems it's the wrong ordering of priorities, I think. I think that's right. I think leadership isn't something you do on the side. It can't be. It has to be a mindset. And I I know people overuse the word mindset and they're always talking about how you can learn to do stuff. I actually believe that about leadership. I don't think leadership is a state. Leadership is a dream in a way for me. It's an objective, It's a, but it's a very, very long term. It's not a moment in time and it doesn't occur overnight and it's never finished. So if you can't get comfortable with that, then that's a personal wrestle that you probably have to go through. But for me, it's, it's not a steady state and it has to evolve, right? Because the people that you are working with and collaborating with are changing. And so are you, you're not static. I remember listening to David Eagleman, who's a neuroscientist talking about the brain. And he said, um, in this interview, he said, the person you are going to be after this podcast is completely different to the person you were before this podcast. And it's true, right? We learn things constantly and we are constantly changing. So if that's true, then our leadership styles have to be adaptable. They have to be flexible and they have to be, you have to be willing to try stuff out and fail at it because it's not perfection that we're after. It's just better. Yeah. 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 I very much, I think, and I'm not thought about it this way before, and I'm not sure if grammatically this is true or not but it seems to me leadership is more of a verb than a noun right it's uh 100 
to put it in primary school language, it's a, it's a doing word rather than a name or a position, right? It's a doing word. Ah, that's great. 100%. Yeah. Coming back to your your journey, Achana, from starting out in, in the mailroom, that being the case, like you'd have gone through so many leadership transitions, right? So I'm really keen to hear sort of what advice you might give for people who are, who are moving through those. And it touches on what I shared just now that I think sometimes the hard thing for people maybe stepping into their first leadership job or even a senior leadership job is just starting to let go of of some of the the doing and the executing, which we get rewarded for. Right? We probably got promoted because we're great at that. But to quote the, the book, like, what got you here won't get you there by Marshall Goldsmith. There comes a point where that just doesn't doesn't work, right? So what's what's your experience around that? And what advice would you give for successfully making some of those transitions? I think the first thing I would say is my own sort of progression has been very squiggly. So I've been willing to kind of go very non-traditional ways through what leadership looks like. So I, I said I had this part-time job in the mailroom. But when I began my career, it was as a teacher. And in, in a lot of ways, education is the most humbling of work because you are stripped bare <laughs> of all sort of uh, armor by the five-year-old kids who just need you to be present. Um, and it's the best form in my heart, the best, one of the best forms of leadership because they lead you, <laughs> not the other way around. Anybody who thinks that you have control over that is... Um, Deluded. <laughs> that's a separate conversation. So I guess we are trained from a really, really young age. And I think the classroom is a really great metaphor for that to do stuff. We learn to finish our homework, to learn our multiplication tables, to execute on exams, to get the grades in order to get into university, in order to get the job. It's always about objectives and achievements. And so sort of unwiring yourself from that is the thing that I've been working on. Because I believe that as a leader, truly in the purest sense of the word leadership, I think you have to be willing to shift from sweating the small stuff to looking at the big picture. And in order to look at the big picture, I believe you need to disassociate yourself from the detail a little bit. But I will say that like anything, this is a, for me, this is a, a continuum. So it's not either or. It's not like as a leader, I stop doing stuff because you will always need to be close to details. I believe that you need to understand the content in order to be able to step out and look at the big picture and survey the horizon. So it's a little bit of a balanced act. But for me, leadership's a state of being as opposed to a state of doing. I guess that's the best way I can summarize it. And so the advice I would have is try to switch between the two. Try to find space in your days to absolutely get good at the doing, but also think about how to be. So what, what do you want to be and how do you want to be it? And what could you do to give yourself time to think about those things? Because as you said so well, Ben, you won't get promoted for being. You will get promoted for doing. But once you are promoted, what are you going to do with that? And it's going to require potentially slowing down and taking a pause and doing less and just being more. So to make this super practical for everybody listening, what are some of the tangible things that you have done to allow you you to do that? Is it time blocking in your diary, for example? Like how, how do you actually do that? Because 
again, I think unless we actually consciously do something and find a way to stop the the day to day doing, so we can do some of the leadership thinking, like we we have to make a change, right? Because if you go back to the good old sort of priority matrix or the Eisenhower matrix, that quadrant one stuff, the urgent and important, is always going to be fighting ferociously for for our time and attention horizon scanning is always going to be important but rarely urgent right so it's always going to get deprioritized so like what are some practical things you've done that listeners could maybe take away and and replicate or adapt to suit them so i think i am still working on this and i will probably continue forever every day is not a winning day where i'm getting a hundred percent of my time to just think about you and me both for china and i do it for a living (laughs) (laughs) it would be lovely but that's just not reality right and you're absolutely right quadrant one demands our attention and we have to have the space to focus there so one of the concrete things i try to hold as a truth is do not fill up your capacity to a hundred percent only fill up your capacity to 70%. Hold that 30% free. It will feel very uncomfortable to you initially because you'll be like, but I'm, but I have all this free time. It doesn't matter because when the urgent and important stuff comes on your plate, everything else gets dropped. And if you don't have that buffer, it's very difficult to switch your brain into high thinking, high delivery mode. So that's the first thing. Make space. 30% at least. If you can get more, amazing. The second thing is having a very strong team. So I am incredibly um, lucky to work in an organization where I work with some incredible minds and with a very strong team and collaborative focus. What that means is you can shift work. You have a bench of people who are all working together towards the same purpose But when the going gets tough and when things get urgent, you as the leader or one of many leaders can take what's needed, do your part and hand off to the next guy. It's a bit like a relay race. You use the team to your advantage and the strengths of everyone are different. So that's the second thing. Find the people who complement you, who don't necessarily have exactly the same skills as you but have different skills that can help you in those moments of urgency, but also to give you the space to horizon scan when you need to. So that's the second thing. And I think the third thing is train, 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 train. So training for the leader. So that will depend on the person. For me, it's, I read a lot. I go to a lot of collaborative events. I try to stay abreast of the latest trends and things that are happening in the world because it interests me. And that's how I thrive when I'm learning. I also dedicate a lot of time to training others on the team. So I spend a lot of my time just in conversation. And by training, it doesn't have to be formal. It can just be engagement. I mean, when was the last time you just stopped and had a coffee with somebody who you don't normally talk to? You know, it's small stuff. And the third thing is engaging with the younger members of staff to make sure they're getting opportunities both to learn and also within the organization, but also outside of it. So those would be my practical ways of getting that move to happen. I love that. And you could perhaps, one could perhaps uh, listen to what you've just shared there and go, well, that's that's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, isn't it? In so much as can you maintain that 30% clearer capacity? Are you able to do that because you have made the time to 
continue going to conferences to learn to engage in these collaborative events and because you focused on on building the team or you could go or is having a great team what's enabled you to, to you to do that my hypothesis for for most leaders would actually be this is almost i think the proof for me of this concept of, of slowing down to speed up right because you have forced yourself to carve out the time to develop the team to keep learning that is what actually enables you to to take those pauses to to scan ahead and and to think which is one of the big things we're paid to do as, as senior leaders right it's it, it's really interesting isn't it like what what comes first and where do you where do you start I think the um, question I would ask you back is, does it matter? Not, not at all. So the reason I ask that is because maybe we could think about it as a cycle as opposed to a chicken and egg. So it's virtuous, right? The more you, for example, train and invest in the people with whom you work, the more you might get some time back. Or maybe you won't in the short term, but in the long term, I bet you will. Basically, I read this fascinating piece of work about the difference between hard and soft skills and the history of that. So you probably know this from your experience in the military, but the hard skill actually was named as such because it came from the military training with weapons, i.e. metal is hard. So the technical skill was the hard skill. I didn't know that. Interesting. And the soft skill was everything else. It didn't involve the metal. It was the things that you needed around the hard skill to provide the scaffolding and the support. And I found that fascinating because I was like, I always hear people saying, well, it's not a soft skill. That's that's just a ridiculous thing. We need to focus on the soft skill. But it doesn't matter. The history of it is so fascinating, right? So where, where am I going with that? What I'm talking about is actually building all of the skills that scaffold the technical capabilities of a team to enable the team to function at its highest possible level. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And for each of us, it might be slightly different. But going back to your original point on the chicken and egg, you could have a star individual on a team, i.e. they have all of the strongest skills, they have the experience, they have the ability to communicate and the emotional awareness and the intelligence, and yet they can be unsuccessful on a team that doesn't provide them with the right opportunities at the right time. So. I guess the reason I'm marking your card with that is because I don't think it's just about hiring the right people. It's also about supporting those people to do their best work. 100%. Yeah, 100%. I want to come back to that sort of star on your team piece in, in, in a few moments, actually. But I'm also keen to keep going deeper layer by layer on, on this current conversation because it's fascinating. I'm quite anti this whole concept of just working longer, harder, faster, kind of hustle, grind, kind of put put in the hours. Now, I'm not anti-hard work. I absolutely believe in hard work, but I don't believe that the, the route to success is by just doing kind of whatever it might be, 12, 14, 16-hour days, day, day in, day out. And at, at the very same time, remember my first job after I left left the military was for a profit-making youth development company that sort of taught teamwork and leadership to 16 to 18-year-olds through overseas expeditions. And the main thing we did was month-long overseas expeditions. And my job was to recruit and train all of these freelance expedition leaders. Now, at the time, we probably needed about 360 mountain leaders, kind of jungle instructors every summer in a very short period. 
We was the biggest company in our sector. We didn't have that good a reputation with these people we wanted to employ for us. We paid them late. We paid them badly. Like we expected them to represent the company when things inevitably went wrong on the expedition. So we really didn't have a lot lot going for us. Whilst this probably wasn't true, but at, at the time, it very much felt that if I, if me and my team failed in finding all of those expedition leaders, it would destroy the company. Now, it wouldn't quite, but it was quite significant because the the young people had spent two years saving their money to go on this expedition because that was a big part of it. And back then, it wasn't cheap. Like the average expedition was probably like three thousand pounds. So actually, turning around to a to a school and saying, "I'm oh, really sorry." Um, Ben and his team didn't quite hit their target. They've not found you an expedition leader. You can't go to Bolivia and trek, trek in the mountains. So it, it it was like huge, huge pressure. And I remember we, we had a new operations director come in. I remember kind of sitting with him, a guy called Nick, Nick Everard, and we was just talking about what we could do to, to break this like horrendous cycle we, we was in. And it, it was a point where we just had to commit to a period of just like, working really hard whilst working smarter to try and do some different things that would that would break the cycle like just then just like stopping and carving out some time wasn't an option so i think sometimes you do don't you have to put in that extra effort to to get off of the 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 hamster wheel and and that i think is often the, the the struggle and balance isn't it in terms of being able to find that space and find different ways of working Yeah, and that's why you asked about time blocking when you originally asked the question. Now, I think all of these strategies are amazing, right? There's time blocking, there's the Pomodoro technique, there's you read about all of these different ways to structure your days, and all of them can be great. But the point is, how flexible are you when the you can say it proverbial hits the fan? the anchors are there and the structure is there and you can put it in and you best will in the world, you will, you know, time block and do all these things to create a space. But as you've just explained, and I think the the story is so perfect because the implications were huge of this thing, right? There are people on the other side of the experience waiting for delivery. You you can't just say, wait, hold on between 10 and 12, I can't take any phone calls and I can't talk to anybody because that's my horizon scanning time. Yeah. You're not going to be able to do that. You You have to adapt to the environment. So it's finding the ability in yourself to flex that and to be willing to flex it. Mm. And I have to be really honest about that. I'm not good naturally at flexing. I like structure. That's my that's my sweet spot. Yeah, same, same. So I, I enjoy knowing every day what is what has to be done, what could be done, and what I don't need to really do. But some days are easier than others. Some days you, you just don't have that luxury. And I have had to work quite hard to get more comfortable. I'm not going to say good because it's not good yet. More comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. Going with the flow is not my strong suit. So I've had to learn how to do it. But I suppose the upside is you can. I think the interesting thing with, um, again, to make this super practical for everybody listening, I think the really interesting thing that i suddenly realized a few years ago and it was very much sort of one of those where you you know the the emoji with your hand hitting the head it was very much one of those but if we're going to try and do any sort of time blocking or try and put time in a diary for horizon scanning work with your diary rather than than against it for for many years running my own business 
I tried to have Friday as sort of my admin catch up plan ahead day. And it was constantly coming out of my diary because clients would want me to run a, a leadership program or kind of clients wanted some some coaching sessions with me. And it's just always just getting cut. Yeah. And then I, I don't know why. Suddenly I went, well, hang on. A client has never asked me to run a workshop on a Monday. No. Like a client has never asked me for a coaching session on a Monday. So why don't I just put it there? Yeah. <laughs> like just like work with your diary rather than against it, I think is really, really useful because we've all probably naturally got really busy days and days that are slightly quieter. So that can be super practical, I think. Yeah, it's true. And that's a great example of freeing yourself from the structure, isn't it? So we think that Outlook should run our lives, whether we accept it or not, <laughs> it, it, it's, it doesn't have to. You can use the tool. Originally, these things were built as tools. We've forgotten that. And they now serve as sort of ball and chain and you can't get away from them. But that's such a great way of seeing it. Yeah. yeah. You know, if Mondays happen to be the quieter day, use the Monday. Right. No one's telling you it has to be a Friday. It's just in your head. You think, oh, actually, I think Fridays will be quieter, but maybe it doesn't work out that way. And that's OK, too. As long as you get to the work, that's the point. I want to come back to something from a few minutes ago as well. You, you mentioned sort of star performers or, or whatever. And we touched on this when we spoke last week. I, I think it's absolutely true that as, as leaders, as managers, as first line team leaders, we tend to to gravitate towards our star performers right because they're the people who we trust we know they'll do a good job they've probably got a fair bit of experience so we can sort of end up giving them a lot of the important jobs the high Im impact jobs what are what are some of your thoughts uh, around that sort of advice pitfalls i think as humans we are we are drawn to those who shine naturally we like the stories of the heroes. We like the stories of the underdog who ends up succeeding. We naturally enjoy watching people shine. At least that's my default position. I think that in an optimistic world, that's what we like to see. And so things in the workplace, and I, and I don't know if it's true anymore, but it definitely was, to me, my experience was things were quite binary. You either were an amazing performer or you weren't really cutting the mustard. So you kind of got left behind. And I think what I've learned over time is that these things don't have to be binary. So it doesn't have to be either, or you can be a bit of both. And it comes back to something I said earlier about finding the best people for the jobs. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. We all have things we're working on and things that we just naturally are good at. And I think one of my jobs is to identify what each of the members of the team are really good at and try to play to those strengths. There will be other things that they're not good at. And there are plenty of things I'm not good at, but it's knowing where my sweet spot is and leveraging that, using that as a springboard for change and to execute what the business needs you to do. I haven't answered your question on purpose because I believe that labeling is a real big problem in our world today. So we love to fit people into boxes. And I'm not sure technology doesn't exacerbate that. And I'm trying to fight that. I'm trying to go against the grain. Of course, there will be things that people don't perform well at. But does that mean you label them bad performers? Or does that just mean that they're not good at that task and you either need to train them, coach them, or maybe 
move them to a different set of tasks. I'm trying very, very hard to stay away from, from the labeling point because I think that can follow you through your career. So just like the star performers get that label assigned to them for the rest of their career, performers who are struggling can also have the reverse effect and it can be quite detrimental to their career progression, to their creativity, to their ability to look for new opportunities to innovate. And coming back to the very beginning of our conversation, they too, the way they feel at work impacts the way they feel at home. And therefore this leads on to other corresponding and interdependent reactions and, and feelings. That's really interesting what you say there as well, Achana, around labels and even labeling in terms of, of job descriptions. Now, actually, I'm not 100% sure where, where I sit on this. I, I think it's interesting to explore. But I know there are some organizations out there who are sort of doing away with, with job descriptions even because they feel that's too, too much of a label. Now, I'm not sure if if that approach works either. I think sort of some clarity around roles and responsibilities is 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 useful, and at the same time, I think it's really important for us as leaders and managers to to your point to to know and understand our people and to look beyond the the job description. Right. So if we know someone has got a, a passion or an interest in something, or if they do something outside of work that means they might have some skills or an interest in a particular task that might well fit outside of their job description, then why wouldn't we, so long as what they're paid to do can still get done, why wouldn't we tap into that expertise and use our people's skills and experience in, in different areas rather than being constrained to this is your job this is your label I, I think it just comes back and back all the time to to know and understand your people right yeah I, I think it's really interesting and I'd love to hear what you think about this because in the context of the military I think this is a very interesting question my observation from seeing it is that people have very defined roles and and it's on purpose because you need to know exactly what your job is in those life and death situations and you cannot deviate because if you deviate, people die. So, you know, there's a reason for that. So I think that's one end of the sort of spectrum of job description, people kind of classification. On the other end is things like, you know, organizations that have no job descriptions, as you've just said, you know, cool. I don't know how that works in practice operationally. I've never worked for a business like that. But I would say that there is some place in between. So there are certain jobs in every organization that just need to get done on a regular basis, every single time in the same way. Figure out how to do those and with the best people. Then you have a sort of second circle of jobs that need doing, but it, there's no time constraints necessarily on those jobs. And you could flex who does them. So second ripple. And then the third is, what about all the things you're trying to do that you haven't yet achieved that you want to do? Who are the best people to both implement those new jobs, build for them, in other words, and then how does it move into BAU? And I guess thinking about it that way, you then flex your teams. And one of the models I really like is this idea of sort of hub and spoke. So you have a hub of people who are kind of you know, real experts in their fields, they come together to build. And then once they've built something, it kind of goes back out into the business and the right teams take over from there because it's already been built and they can kind of leverage on that. So practically, because I know you've said this a couple of times, how does this translate into practical actions? 
I think the way it translates for me in my day job is that I have a group of incredible people who I work with who are each good at a variety of things. If I know I'm building a technology solution, I will call on the technologist to come and be in the room during the debate to help build. And then once it gets built, once it's integrated, it goes back out into the business. We will train the business on how to use the tools. We will make sure we put in the right level of scaffolding to enable success to occur. We know what to, ha- what to do when troubles occur. How do you troubleshoot? Who do you escalate to? So chains of command and lines of command are clear. And then we just keep iterating through and constantly testing and learning and innovating as a result. I just, it's dynamic, right? That's what I'm kind of getting to is you need a combination of job descriptions because some things just have to get done. And people just like me, do like a bit of routine, even though we say we don't like routine, there's some comfort in knowing kind of what the guardrails are. And then around that, you let people innovate based on what their strengths are. That requires two things, in my opinion. It requires leaders who are comfortable with ambiguity, because when you do that, the structure kind of can evolve and morph over time. And it also requires quite strong systems and controls. So you need to be alerted to when things aren't going as planned and what are you going to do in those events. So I think there's an opportunity for business to get a bit more creative with how they structure themselves while providing some guardrails around it. So this is gold dust. It's absolute gold dust. I think there you've absolutely nailed it in terms of those two things that you just shared that, that you need. So it was systems and process and what was the first one sorry my mind's gone blank and i've forgotten already leaders that are flexible enough to adapt yeah so leaders are flexible enough to adapt and some systems processes control that is absolutely it and as you was talking i was thinking of the the military scenario an analogy and i'm always very mindful that there are some things from the the military and military leadership that translate and work in the corporate world and there are some that ab- absolutely don't but when we're talking around job descriptions and and clear roles yes we absolutely have that in in the military and i'd never thought of it in this way before but the analogy i'd make is it's almost like having a sort of big meccano set where you've got different bits that do very specific things. And you've got all of these bits and a big bucket are on the carpet in front of you. And from all of those bits that do a very specific job, you can take out different bits, the leader can pull out different bits to solve whatever problem it is is facing you or to build what whatever you want. It's how you put those very specific bits together that, that works. It's not by having one rigid plan that this is the kit and this is what it what it builds, right? And of course, the other differences that we can, that people often forget with the, with the military. So the military are in the very fortunate situation that their peacetime job is to train for, for war fighting, essentially. So if they're not deployed in Iraq or Afghanistan, they're essentially training. They might have other things to do, but they're essentially training, which means what the military can do that we really struggle to do in business purely because of time and we've got budgets to hit and shareholders to keep happy we're all trained to do the person's job left and right of us the person's job one level above us and we've done the job one level before generally so everyone can always step sideways step up step down if needs be to to do the other job and that's just the the luxury that we don't have in the in the business world but that is a very subtle but 
huge at the same time kind of di difference, I think. We should take a leaf out of that book, right? And it's interesting that you say that we don't have that luxury in business. I would argue we should find it. Hmm. Perhaps not to the same extent that the military have. Not to the same yeah. extent. So maybe we can't do it every time we're, you know, we're home or the equivalent, like in the workplace, you don't have that time because you have customers and customers have needs and you need to deliver. But I love that idea that you could be trained to do the jobs to the left and right of you, the job above you, and you've done the job below you. So actually, in theory you are completely resilient from that perspective. As an organization, you are resilient. And we've had a lot of chatter about resilience over the last three years, not least of which is because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes do wonder is, we, we talk about our individual resilience, but what, the, what about the resilience of the collective? So whatever that collective looks like, mm -hmm. both on a sort of well-being scale, but also ability to execute the job well. And how could we think about that differently? How could we structure ourselves differently? And I do want to say one other thing, and it occurred to me while you were talking, in order to enable perhaps a better structure, a more flexible structure with the right people doing the right jobs at the right time, I think as organizations, we have to accept that takes more time. It's not the easier option. The easier option is to put people into one job, tell them to do the job, and just keep checking that they're doing the job. That is actually simpler to proceduralize because the person, whether they're happy or not, you actually don't care. And that's in that case, you just care about whether the output is right. I'm advocating for a different model, but it requires a lot more work. So you have to be willing to commit to that. But I think at the end, you end up with a much more resilient and a much more well uh, environment for work. 100% agree. Yeah, I'll, I'll come and work in that organization. <laughs> Well, we're not there yet. <laughs> John, I, like, I could easily just sit here and keep chatting with you for, for another hour. It's, it's, there's been so much gold dust in our conversation today, but I am going to move us on to a couple of quick fire questions to bring things to a close. So the first one is, what is the one item other than your smartphone, because that's what everyone always says otherwise, that you would immediately go out and replace if it were to be lost, stolen or broken? So I have to say for full disclosure for people listening, you gave me these questions before and it was the one question I couldn't answer. I don't know because the things I would replace are, I don't have anything that I would want to replace necessarily immediately. I would want to make sure I've got the people I love with me. So I, I, I didn't know how to answer the question. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I, I, I love that though, the people. Yeah, that's what matters at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, for me, it's the people. And other than that, if I had the people, I, I would be fine. Brilliant. And what would you say is the one book that has had the most impact on you or perhaps the book that you find yourself recommending the most often to other people? So we am going to be a bit cheesy here, but I'm going to say Harold and the Purple Crayon. And the reason for that is, you know, that I've talked about this quite a lot of late. And so it's very much on my mind. I think I would extrapolate that to children's stories, actually. I recommend children's books a lot. And the reason I do that is not because I've completely lost my mind, but because I think there are some pure lessons in children's stories that we sometimes don't get to quickly enough in the wonderful leadership books that, that exist today. And there are so many um, incredible leaders out there who write incredible 
books. But I think children's stories have a way of cutting to the chase. They just get to the key point, right? And there's something really lovely about that. And so I talk about this a lot. I think there's some very transferable skills from childhood into leadership. So I'll, I'll mention this because I suspect maybe you didn't want to from modesty or because you're on somebody's show, but Harold and the Purple Crown, and you mentioned wonderful leadership books out there. So you've just had a, as we record this, your TEDx talk has <laughs> just gone live, right? So we'll put the link to the the video in, in the show notes. But do you want to just give us two minutes of Chana, the, the sort of uh, teaser of your TED talk? Yeah, it's a very kind of you. The teaser is basically that I think every workplace could use a little bit more wonder because when we're in that state of wonder, we tend to be more open to new perspectives and more willing to listen, to build and to contribute. And ultimately, what does every workplace need? It needs people who are willing to do those three things. So I've spent what feels like a lifetime exploring this idea of wonder, first from working with children who experience wonder all the time and now working with adults who experience wonder a little bit less. And I've noticed that there are some differences in the way kids navigate the world versus adults. I think there are reasons for that, and I don't want to oversimplify it because life is tough, and we all know that um, it's challenging for many. But if we could access that emotion of wonder more often, I think we would be stronger for it. And I explain why I think that in the talk, and I had a lot of fun doing that. So yeah, thanks for the shout out. Yeah, amazing. And actually, that's a lovely link and segue back to something we've spent quite a lot of time discussing today, which is I think, in order to access to reaccess that state of wonder, what does that require? It requires a little bit of time and space, right? We need to slow down ever so often, move away from I suspect, being human doings and get back to being what we really are, which is a, a human being, right? Yes, yes. Couldn't agree more. And we don't always remember because it's hard and life has a tendency to come at us. But what if we could shift our stance and actually walk through life together with a little bit more lightness and a little bit more optimism and hope? Because I think we would make those small steps and they seem really small but i think they're very fundamental those small steps could make the entire world a better place achana thank you so much for your time today um i probably shouldn't say this but this has been one of my favorite episodes in a long time <laughs> you say that to everyone I no know. i well you can listen i you can listen i certainly don't and we're still recording it's been absolutely fantastic and and, and this is true as well because of how we produce these i i don't always go back and listen again to to these conversations that I record but but this absolutely is one where where I'm going to do that because I want to go back through it and and make my my own detailed notes so thank you so much for for coming on sharing your your thoughts and experience there's so much in here that I think everybody listening can take away and and practically use and we'll also just once again for everybody listening we'll pop the the link to your TEDx video in the in the show notes as well for people to listen to so thank you very much Thank you for giving me a chance to talk to you. It's been so much fun. Thanks a lot, Ben. A few quick points before you head off to whatever it is you're going to do next. First of all, let me say a big thank you for joining Achana and myself for this episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. 
I really hope it resonated with you and you can take away some practical tips to apply into your life and work to help make you an even better leader. Before you go, do go ahead and check out my website at ben-morton.com to learn more about how I can support you and those in your organisation to be the best leaders you can possibly be. So go ahead and click the link in the show notes now or visit my website at ben-morton.com. All it now leaves me to say is thank you once again for your support and together let's continue to make the world a better place through great leadership and effective delegation. Until next time, look after yourself, look after those who've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And as always, lead on.